We're in front of a car park that's referred to as the llama lot because Tony Shea had an obsession with llamas. It's August 2022, and I'm taking a walk around Vegas with Brent and Anthony, the very spirited pair of artists we met a few episodes ago. There are paintings and prints and images of llamas. There's a neon llama on the signage for the lot. In the days and months after Tony Shea's passing in 2020, his impact on Las Vegas was reported in the most glowing terms. Downtown Las Vegas put on a celebration for Tony Shea tonight. Shea passed away last November, and ever since his death, there has been an outpouring of support and appreciation for what he's done for our Las Vegas community. Despite the fact that he'd stepped away from the downtown project years prior, it seemed his efforts had a lasting impact. Nothing would be here now if there wasn't any change and if someone didn't have the initiative to get up and, and do something. This is beautiful. This is amazing. And I love this. And I thank him so much for this. It really takes people like that to really commit to their city, to really put the time and effort and money to just create something for the community. But a couple of years after his death, I want to understand how his legacy lives on. What remains of Tony's utopian, llama-shaped vision for a neighborhood? What does it look like today? Downtown has changed dramatically as well, but like this was what you would call like a ghetto, like a very not safe area. Like you see people walking around, going to different shops, buying things, going to get drinks, just having a fun time that was not this place 15 years ago. But I also think that it took a group of people that they didn't like, that didn't think looked pretty for their image, and they pushed them out, pushed them down didn't necessarily create programs to help them, you know. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Far, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness. Episode 7, No Dogs in the Dog Park. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. As soon as my producer Charlie and I set off with Brent and Anthony, we're treated to their uninhibited take on Tony Shea. This is the former Inspire Theater, which is a perfect Tony Shea fantasy. We pause outside the Inspire Theater, one of the DTP's early investments. It's a simple, white, art deco-looking building, just a few minutes' walk from the Ogden, the luxury apartment complex Tony lived in. You don't create an inspiring structure. You create a boring structure and put a sign on it that says inspire. It's a former 7-Eleven. 
It's a former 7-Eleven. And Tony buys the whole thing, gets rid of the 7-Eleven, which is entirely more useful and profitable for that corner of the world, right? Like, people actually need a 7-Eleven there. There's poor people, and they just want a freaking Slurpee. Inspire is technically still part of the DTP, but it isn't used for plays. Basically, there's an occasional lecture or conference, often by someone in the business or tech world. And so not that much happens there. It's certainly not that much for 90% of the citizenry of Las Vegas. Maybe there's 10% that's actually rotatingly using that for some kind of small projects or downtown promotions. It's probably a gutted, empty room. Going back to the sign, though, that's so poignant. The sign remains. The casino is gone. Everything is gone, but the sign that says glory still stands lit up every night. We come upon the gold spike. This is a very old casino which Tony bought and transformed into a bar and luxury hotel. It's a place Zappos employees would go to after work because it's just a few hundred metres from the headquarters, which is in the old city hall building. Many Zappos employees also lived at the Gold Spike. The Gold Spike historically was a place that low-income people would come to gamble, but also that beginning dealers would come to cut their teeth and learn a skill set. It was part of the local development of industry, our primary industry, which is gaming. And then Tony Shea bought it and then made an announcement that uh, the first thing he would do would be to surrender the Gold Spike casino license which would have meant nothing to somebody out of Las Vegas, but within Las Vegas it was an announcement that Tony Shea was opposed to gambling, which is its whole absolute right to do. Not his right to impose, I don't like gambling, one block from Fremont Street and assume the people on Fremont Street aren't going to feel threatened. And that's a working class job in this town. They all start out in smaller casinos for low pay and they work their way up to money they can actually afford to feed their families with. Coexisting cultures are just fine, but Tony Shea didn't put it out as coexistence. He put it out as a battle that he will to win. If you put all your employees in this building and you buy all the apartment complexes three blocks away and you buy up the closest casino and you turn that into a clubhouse and then you charge $7 for drinks, well, their salary is going directly from your pocket into their pocket into your pocket again. He owns the bar. He owns the apartments. So if they're renting from him, buying drinks at his place, eating food at his restaurants, Tony's got nothing to lose. That's not creating a culture, right? That's just getting a return on investment. We walk past a mural by Shepard Ferry, the artist behind the famous Obama Hope poster, you know, the one that was really popular when he was running for president. Several people have told me they're really bothered by the fact that Ferry is a famous and expensive artist and he's not from Las Vegas. Why didn't the DTP commission a local Vegas artist? As we continue on our promenade, we see more lapsed DTP enterprises, like the DTP-funded grocery store. This was Tony's idea, but what it ended up being is a place that was more overpriced with Whole Foods with a lot less selection. And there was a tiny little diner inside, and it could not possibly service anyone that wasn't getting executive pay at a major industry on a regular basis for their groceries. Those are not prices that regular people working for 15 to $20 an hour can live with on a regular basis. Another ill-conceived idea, according to Brenton Anthony, is the Hydrant Club, 
a private members club for dog owners. At its entrance, there's a big yellow metallic sculpture of a fire hydrant and a fence running all the way around. We're in the middle of the desert and this grass is like golf course lush. This is the kind of grass you could lay down on, take a nap if you needed to. It's inviting, but also seems kind of wrong. It's gorgeous. It's so green. It's so verdant. And it kind of boggles the mind as to how much water and how many resources are being used to maintain a patch of grass in a small park that no one seems to be using, or at least very few people are using, if anyone is. I have never seen anyone walk their dog in here. Never. I've lived here for over a decade. This thing has been here for almost 10 years. I've never once walked by and said, oh, there's a person walking a dog in there. Why are you building a dog park when you don't have anybody living in this neighborhood who has any interest in a dog park? I'm sensing a theme. This is the most egregious example of if we build it, they will come. I will move downtown because there's a little place down there where I can subscribe to where I can walk my dog. After the Hydrant Club, we passed several sculptures which Tony had commissioned. There's a giant love heart, a picture of a meerkat made out of recycled trash, and a robot sculpture. Someone is sleeping inside that one. We reach a row of boarded up buildings. Now we're coming towards the area that is a series of empty motels that were also purchased and muralized by the downtown project. The structures exist. There are no occupants. There is no industry going on there. Now, it seems like most of these places are simply sitting empty. As I look around, I notice they're actually really beautiful structures, some with Spanish-style architecture. And quite a few of them look like they've had a recent lick of paint in colours like bubblegum pink and turquoise and yellow. It's strange seeing these lovely buildings just vacant, with locks on the fences up front. His vision had already degenerated to the point of a couple of storefronts and a lot of property ownership. But after he died, it's just been a more and more rapid degeneration, and even the true believers are pulling out. Brent and Tony need to shoot off, but my producer Charlie and I continue to explore the downtown area. There certainly are some nice spots. Ferguson's, one of the retro motels that the DTP did manage to develop, is beautifully restored with cafes and independent shops. It's a two-story motel. It's been painted white. It's just really, really beautiful, actually. So outside there's like all these cacti, kind of different types of cacti and stuff. And then inside um, there's just loads of palm trees. Um, I see kind of like about two people milling around going towards the coffee shop. It's called Mothership Coffee Roasters. It's pretty empty. We're just coming up to midday. I don't know, I feel like it should be buzzing with people wanting to go to the coffee shop, wanting to get food, wanting to just even hang out on their lunch hour because it's just such a beautiful day and it's an absolutely gorgeous space. But I feel like there's more people manning the entrance than there are people inside. Just around the corner is a whole street of boarded-up buildings and derelict houses, with many homeless people sitting in the blistering Vegas heat. We start talking to Alicia, a longtime resident of downtown Vegas, who remembers when Tony arrived and purchased City Hall for the Zappos headquarters. I've seen our homeless population not only double, but triple because of Zappos. Why do you think it's because of Zappos? Because he bought all these hotels down Fremont Street, has done nothing with them, 
and he put women, children. He put everybody out of their place for what? Nothing. Okay. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about your own situation and how it was affected by uh, by Tony? Because I got put out of my place. Okay. And where were you living? At the Alicia Motel. Okay. And so, so what happened? Like, were you given warning that you're being? Uh, yeah, beaten? two weeks notice. Two weeks notice, and they said what exactly? That we had to go. Okay. Because they sold the building, and we were under the impression that they were going to renovate it. And let us back in, and that didn't happen, obviously. Do you know what some of those people are doing now? They're homeless. They're homeless. So I was speaking to some people in Ferguson, and they were saying that they think Tony Shea's built a community here. Would you, what would you say to Oh, that? yeah, a community of his people, not the people in the community. Tony Shea has done nothing for downtown Las Vegas. He put seven bars on one street. We got a dollar store down here, they, they took that away. We had a pizza joint down here, they took that. We had a smoke shop down here, they took that. And then they took everything away from us to put it here for his people. So like, um, we're asking everyone what they think Tony Shea's legacy has been. Um, what would you say? I say Tony Shea is a piece of shit. Why? why? Because he's phony as fuck, fake as hell. Because how did he beautify Las Vegas? What did he do for the downtown city of Las Vegas? Nothing. It has a $350 million budget, and the goal is to help make uh, downtown Vegas uh, the most community-focused large city in the world, uh, to have everything you need to live, work, play within walking distance, and to make it the co-learning and co-working capital of the world. Walking around the downtown project today, it's a far less glorious picture. Elysia's take on the DTP is damning and heartbreaking. And from what I can see, this tech dream world of co-working, collisions and community has dwindled into a few shops and restaurants geared primarily toward a trickle of tourists. The real legacy of the downtown project seems to be the marginalization of locals who were never included in Tony's vision of a community. All the hope and idealism of the DTP, all those vital dreams that for a brief moment drew so many people here, they seem to have dried up turned to dust in the Vegas sun. It was a real estate development project from what I could see, mixed with some sort of, you know, vision, misguided or otherwise, on the part of this character. This is Andre Spicer, a professor of organisational behaviour and the dean of the Bayes Business School at the University of London. He's direct about what he thinks the downtown project always was, despite Tony's lofty words about building community. Spicer says that this isn't anything new, though. Companies have long taken advantage of this idea of creating community. They wouldn't invest in developing community if they didn't think it had some benefit for them of some description, whether that's being able to attract people to work for them who otherwise would not work for them, whether that's providing a way of kind of coordinating or controlling the workforce. Spicer says this was true for the company towns of the industrial era, founded by business leaders who, like Tony, amassed properties and built services to corral their workforce. Let's create a kind of good version of industrialism and care for, you know, the working people by creating these nice homes and some nice um, parkland and, uh, you know, a sense of welfare. But many examples which we would associate with more kind of enlightened company towns are kind of real estate development projects. And in more recent years, 
tech companies have used the concept of community to entice both employees and customers with the idea that they're offering something bigger, something that taps into our existential needs. But the cynical take, of course, is that the notion of community is a business strategy, just like any other. And perhaps that's simply what the Downtown Project was tapping into. It's just one of the most recent examples of a wider trend of these kind of community-oriented organisations, organisations which try to coordinate and control their people through using community rather than rules and regulations. Or sometimes one of the big drivers of this is just narcissistic personalities of leaders, right? Uh, and it gives them a kind of a, a kick of having acolytes. Spicer suggests that this cult-like following is what Tony actually cultivated. One of the biggest lessons is he created a world where few people could say no to him. So he just consistently surrounded himself with believers. And then when people weren't a believer, he was willing to pay them off, get rid of them. And then that created this sort of world where people weren't willing to question his poor decisions or when things were going wrong, which might have helped him to write the course. So this is, it's not just a story of Tony Shea. This is a very common story in many companies where essentially a strong culture leads you to a position where people who should know better don't speak up and don't ask the questions which might save that company, that community, or that individual from disaster. We've reached out to the Downtown Project, which now goes by the name of DTP Companies, about several of the claims our guests have made throughout this series. At the time of recording, we've received no response. Whatever the future holds for Downtown Las Vegas, it is only one aspect of Tony Shea's legacy. For many, he's still the creative business genius who turned an online shoe store into a billion-dollar empire. He changed how we shop online, cementing things we take for granted today, like free returns. He took customer care to another level. He innovated workplace culture, helping set in motion a trend towards casual, fun-loving offices. And he pioneered this bigger notion that if you focus on ensuring that workers and customers are happy, then profits will follow. He's always told me that whenever you can deliver wow through service, do it, double down on it, invest in it. It'll pay spades, it'll pay dividends well into the future. I have been uh, inspired by his conscious capitalism, uh, whether he called himself that or not. Through his book, called Delivering Happiness, and his institute of the same name, his vision has spread around the world. He gave me the opportunity to build Delivering Happiness in the Netherlands, and I'm so grateful for that. Whatever you're thinking, think bigger, just like Tony was saying. Despite everything, there's a lot to hold on to, says Paco Alvarez, the curator who worked with Tony at Zappos. For him, it was about this work-life integration, being happy, but also being profitable. Happy employees make productive employees. Productive employees make a profitable company. And no one's arguing that. It's genius what he put in that book. But clearly, the failures of the downtown project and Tony's own demise suggest that something was missing in all of this. A huge blind spot. 
Because, of course, many people, including Tony himself, weren't so happy. I put this to Jen Lim, co-founder of the Delivering Happiness Institute. Tony was human, like all of us. We all have challenges with it, and so I think that's not really saying he went too far with happiness or anything. It's more to the belief that we need to be mindful of our own selves, too. But has his death exposed flaws in the delivering happiness approach? Is an obsession with happiness a recipe for disaster? I don't believe it can be simplified that way. That, to me, is just... It's, we all live complex lives. And it's such an oversimplification of the complexity of what it means to be human and live and die. And so I don't believe that. I believe there's a lot of different elements and layers for everyone's life. Being around him for the time I was, he definitely was not happy all the time. There was a lot of stresses. There was a lot of different times of you know reflection or thoughtfulness. Or, so if you really get had a chance to know him, it wasn't him saying, let's be happy, happy, happy. I think it may be, if anything, it's people's perception of what he was putting out there. But I think his biggest thing was being true to yourself, hence being true or weird or authentic, and that's for sure. Others might question whether Tony really did create a space for people to be their true selves. That said, Tony's death has seemed to prompt the Delivering Happiness Institute to adopt new approaches. All these things that we've been doing for all these years, how are they still true? And what is my true belief system based on everything that was hurt and lost during that year? And that's, incidentally, as a forcing function, how I came up with the greenhouse model. Because this whole notion of, yes, of course we want to grow others. Yes, of course we want to be good leaders. But what are we doing for ourselves? So, this greenhouse model, what exactly is it? We all need to nurture our own greenhouse as we grow others. Because Tony used to talk about us as leaders, we want to not be the tallest tree or biggest plant. We want to create the conditions for others to grow, which I totally agreed with. 2020 happened, and as I tried to process everything, I realized the build on that sentiment was that Yes, of course we want to take care of other greenhouses and grow, but we have to make sure we're tending to our own as well. So that's essentially where the model is today. Hmm. I'm not sure she's answered my main question. Is focusing on happiness the problem? Because something Brent said to me keeps ringing in my ears. I hope we all understand at this point that any system that enforces positivity is inherently abusive. Beyond Tony, beyond the downtown project, beyond Zappos, we're all a bit obsessed with happiness, aren't we? Are we doing it all wrong? I feel like we need someone from the outside to help us make sense of this whole idea of happiness as a business philosophy. So I call up social psychologist Brock Bastian. He's the author of The Other Side of Happiness, Embracing a More Fearless Approach to Living. We do understand it in two different kinds of ways. There's more of a, a sort of hedonic 
way of thinking about happiness, which is positivity, that focus on positive mood or positive thinking. And then there's a broader way of thinking about happiness, which is more the eudaimonic approach, which is to think about happiness as not only positive feelings and thoughts, but also meaningful connection to purpose, to people. It seems that the past sort of decade or so, a lot of workplaces seem to be interested in happiness and having happy employees. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? And I think for good reason, we've recognised that supporting people's well-being at work is really important. If you have happy employees, they're going to do better, they're going to you know, have fewer stress-related or other sorts of um, psychological-related problems coming from work. I guess the main issue is that what makes us happy isn't straightforward or formulaic. There's been a focus on just trying to get people to feel happier or to focus on the importance of staying happy, to thinking that if we just encourage that sense and feeling and positivity around happiness, that that will achieve what we need to. And then people will be great and they'll be able to do those, you know, we'll get those additional benefits that I just mentioned. And it really, I guess it doesn't really work in that way. And sometimes what has happened there is it doesn't really leave room for people's authentic experiences, which aren't always positive and has almost narrowed down the acceptable ways of experiencing or communicating ourselves at work to just those sort of very positive and upbeat ones. And I think that's become quite dangerous. So if a company was to come to you and say, Brock, how do I create a happy workplace? What are some of the first things you tell them to do? Well, I think you've got to straight away make sure that, you know, you've got good leadership, good supportive leadership. Make sure that People are able to raise issues and concerns when they need to uh, identify where stress may be happening or also that they've got tools to manage, you know, what, are, what what's quite normal is some interpersonal conflict in the workplace. But, you know, tools to deal with that early and preventatively before it becomes, you know, I guess a greater problem downstream and you end up with bullying and harassment and other sorts of issues. Are there sort of characteristics of a leader or a leadership style that promotes a happier workplace. Being a leader isn't just about telling people what to do. It's it's supporting them to do it well. It's being able to respond to people's needs, their emotions, as well as, I guess, assigning them tasks. Certainly, we know that these days, leaders that are able to be authentic with people to a certain degree or to show a little bit of vulnerability to connect with people are probably better leaders. Leaders that are able to perhaps take feedback on board or to, to be able to, I guess, take other perspectives into account. As Brock speaks, I'm reminded of all the ways Tony's approach at the Downtown Project seemed to run counter to this. Open communication, space to be vulnerable, tools to resolve conflict. I mean, these are precisely the kinds of things many people said were lacking from the culture of the DTP. Happiness, Brock seems to be saying, doesn't really work as a core value. You can't just say, I want a happy company. Rather, it's a byproduct of a range of other factors. You have to create the conditions for happiness, which, Brock says, are things like open communication, space for difficult conversations, and tools to address conflict. And perhaps what we're after is something much richer than just happiness. It's a sense of purpose and an ability to be complicated and flawed and true to ourselves along the way. We get purpose at work from being challenged, being stimulated, feeling that we're learning and growing and perhaps expanding our, our own capabilities. And of course, that means that 
there are going to be elements of finding purpose in our work which aren't always comfortable, aren't always just happy and positive. There's going to be points where we might feel quite stressed or we might feel anxious. Perhaps we're going to give a presentation and together, I think having purpose in life does bring happiness, but I don't think that purpose is only ever achieved in situations where I'm feeling happy. Well, we're almost at the finish line. Something that strikes me 10 years on from the heyday of companies talking about changing the world and focusing on purpose and meaning and happiness and community, the thing I never considered back then, is what gives these people the right to claim that they have the answers to these big questions about how to live? I mean, at least people like philosophers and therapists and religious leaders, they've been grappling with these questions for generations. Since when did people who are good at coding and business decide that they were the ones with the answers to the fundamentals of life? It's something I put to Andre Spicer. I mean, I don't know if this is a question or just a thought, um, but what would make such people qualified to solve people's relationships? I mean, and there's that, that term solve that yeah, gets yeah, used, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like... Yeah, everything is a problem with a solution, right? Yeah. And why do they feel qualified to do that? I mean, there's, there's actually some interesting kind of cognitive psychology on this, which shows that basically when people are expert in one area, they tend to overvalue their expertise in another, right? So they might be fantastic coders, and then that then makes them think that they can come up with solutions for areas which are outside of their areas of expertise, like psychology and so forth. In one of our first conversations, I'd asked Josh Levine if he thought there was an arrogance to Tony Shea. How could you not be arrogant with that kind of money? I mean, that's the thing. You, you would never know. He had such a humble energy. But how could you not feel some sense of arrogance? Not only that he had the money, but he'd, he'd created like two mega million businesses. I can't imagine being in that position and not thinking that you were special or that you knew better than other people or that you were uniquely skilled or talented. Josh told us at the start about how Tony's awkwardness was charming, especially for such a powerful person. But, you know, for everything that so many people have said about Tony's humility, that he was low-key and shy, a mega-rich tech mogul who wore T-shirts and a simple backpack, there's the other side of him a man who surrounded himself with yes-men, who dismissed constructive criticism, a man who was good at running e-commerce companies and delved into the business of living and of creating community and poured in tons of money without hiring the right experts. I mean, we're all messy and complicated people, but these sorts of contradictions have major consequences when you have money and power like Tony. Walking around downtown Las Vegas was really strange. I was struck by just how empty it is, how little remains of all the businesses the DTP invested in, and how few people are still around from that time. You think, $350 million on this? And what's even sadder than the lack of bricks and mortar legacy are the enormous silences I encountered trying to speak to people about the downtown project. I mean, communities, they're not meant to last forever, but the fracturing and complete dissolution of this one is shocking and sad. I interviewed Jen Lim back in 2013 for an article I was writing whilst I was a business reporter at the BBC. The article looked at ways companies try to create happier employees. 
I found the work people like she and Tony Shea were doing to be inspiring back then, as I was navigating an existential crisis of my own in my mid-twenties. However, through my reporting and my proximity to so many companies who have these sorts of philosophies centered around happiness, it didn't take long to see how unsustainable this could be. Places where people talk of authenticity and vulnerability, but which are also awash in conflict avoidance and in squashing anything that isn't fully positive. Most of us can't last long in these sorts of environments, and so things fizzle if they don't first explode. Which brings us to where we are today. A tech visionary dead in a house fire, an empty row of motels and desolate lots, and no community to speak of, or that few want to even talk about. And outside Las Vegas and the downtown project? A social media public square now owned by an increasingly conspiratorial tech billionaire. You know who I'm talking about. The founders of overhyped co-working spaces and exploitative gig economy companies, still being given millions of dollars for another chance. All set against the backdrop of an increasingly polarized society. And on the horizon, a metaverse, and even more hiding behind screens, as maybe the real world is too complex, too messy, and too full of the ups and downs that have long made life a rich and fruitful place. The pursuit of happiness is a noble goal, but if Tony's story teaches us anything, maybe it's that there's no code for contentment. So, we should be wary of those who think they've cracked it. Next time on The Cost of Happiness, a bonus episode where I digest the big themes of this show in an interview with Dan Lyons, author of Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble, and one of the writers on the HBO comedy series Silicon Valley. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me. Nasran Tavakoli Far. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Tom Berry at Wardour Studios. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.